0: This morning, I'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb, the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to them, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the day of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty works and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors at Sojourn. And we are finishing up our series that's been going through the book of Deuteronomy uh, this morning. I think by my count, this is the 27th one in Deuteronomy. And we finish with Deuteronomy chapter 34. There is a monument in Westminster Abbey of the Wesleys. And at the bottom of this monument for Charles Wesley, it says this God buries his workmen but carries on his work. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. This is also, also possibly a quote that, that Charles Wesley used. It's in some of his works, so maybe used during his life and his ministry as he carries out the ministry of, of his Lord Jesus and wrote hymns and, and ministered to many people. God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. And that is about all that's left in the book of Deuteronomy. God is going to bury his workmen. The, the only thing left on the agenda for this book is that Moses die, And then God isn't finished. Right? We're only in you know, the, the fifth book of the Old Testament. God has more work to carry on. But the nature of these events, of God burying his workmen, that the nature of the events surrounding the, the death of Moses are important as we end Deuteronomy this morning. Moses' death could be divided up into three sections of of 40 years, right? He he spent 40 years in Egypt. He, He spent 40 years then as a shepherd in Midian. And then the last 40 years of his life, he spent roaming around the wilderness with a rebellious group of Israelites. And after those Three sets of 40, Moses has led the people of God, the Israelites, those who had been redeemed and pulled out of Egypt and slavery to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. He's led them to the very edge, the doorstep of the promised land by the hand and sustaining power of God. He's preached the law to them again and that's what we saw in the book of Deuteronomy. He's given them a song. He's pronounced blessings over them and we know that there's only one final instruction for Moses to obey. It's actually a couple chapters back in chapter 32, towards the end. Here's what God tells him: Go up on this mountain, go up on this mountain, the mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and the view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die. Go up and die. That's Moses' final instruction from the Lord that he's been following faithfully for these three sets of 40 years. And we see these remarkable words in verse 1 of chapter 34 that Moses moves in obedience to the Lord, ascending to his death. Verse 1 says, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. How hard was this command to follow? It's really unknown. We don't see any perspective from Moses here. We don't know how hard it was to start moving your feet up that mountain, to say all those final goodbyes to all those people. Now, some of them you might have said goodbye to quickly, like Achan back there, that's a quick goodbye, we're moving on. But there have been a few that Moses probably had hard goodbyes as he starts stepping up the mountain, knowing that when he gets there, that's where he's going to die, and that this is the final command: go up on this mountain and die. He did long to go into the Promised Land, if you remember. In chapter three, we read about this, and this is, I mean, not far from chapter 34. This doesn't happen to the book of Deuteronomy maybe days. And in chapter three, he pled with the Lord to let him go in. So we know that he wants to go in, but maybe he's now, after preaching through Deuteronomy, maybe he's at more, more at peace with this decision of the Lord. Now, whatever the case may be, we, we know what he ultimately knows. He wrote about it in the psalm that's attributed to his name. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, likely written on the plains of Moab, where they currently are show us a little bit about what Moses knows and maybe what he was thinking as he goes up the mountain as he goes up this mountain he knows that before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God you return man to dust and say return O children of man He also knows and is perhaps meditating on as he goes up this mountain, Psalm 90 verse 1. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations. Moses is going up a mountain outside the promised land and he still knows home. A man... Who, who never really had a permanent place, never really could be settled in Egypt because he knew that wasn't quite the right fit, never could really be settled in Midian, something's off there, God has more for us and me, never really at home in the wilderness because who could want to make that their home? And plus with those people that you're camping with, that can be a little annoying at times. So never really at home in the wilderness either. That man had an eternal home, an eternal dwelling place. He knew him. Now, when you know that you are from the dust and you're going to return to the dust and that from everlasting to everlasting that there's only one true living God and you know that God, then you have all that you need to receive difficult commands from the Lord and to move in obedience to him. And that's what Moses does. Now, when you know the Lord as your dwelling place, No matter where you are, you can be strong and courageous and move and step with the commands of God. Even if that strength and courage means that you're actually taking the steps up a mountain to your very death. It can be done by faith because you know that God is my home. How bolstering is that to live if your real home is not tied to a zip code or an address or a nation? And how comforting is it to know that I have an eternal dwelling place that isn't temporary and isn't going to crumble? How important is that to know, especially when you're obeying commands like the command that Moses gets from the Lord here, go up and die. Knowing that God is my eternal dwelling place can strengthen obedience to that kind of command. And we We can know then, if if this is what Moses has put up, like, hey, we we know know the the, the dwelling place place of all of our generations, then that means that's for the people of God. This is the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting. He can be our eternal home, our eternal dwelling place, so that we can know that even though we might lose a job, we might lose an actual home, we might lose friends, we might even lose our life, but God is our eternal place. Do you know that kind of security in an insecure world? Do you know that kind of safety as dust who's going to return to dust? Those things are only found in the one true living God. When he becomes our eternal home and our dwelling place, and we can feel that sense of comfort and safety and security no matter where we are, no matter our location. And that only happens when we put all of our trust and all of our hope fully in him. So Moses, verse 1, went up. Extraordinary words as Moses moves in obedience to the Lord, walking the steps up the mountain to his death. Verse 1, he's going up Mount Nebo, and the Lord shows him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that's the valley of Jericho, the, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. He, he just takes a deep breath and he looks around. He gets this panoramic view of the promised land, the land that they've been directed towards by the Lord for years now. He, he looks around, he just scans and, and he just takes a survey of all that's there. Can you imagine the emotions that are in and upon Moses as he looks around? He's just said his final goodbyes. He knows he's going to die. Then God takes him up this mountain, which alone, like, you, you put some work in to get there. Like, I could get emotional on a mountaintop easily, too. Like, he worked hard. to. Like, the view is great. Like, imagine what could have gone in as he looks at the land that God had promised. And he stays on the other side. He looks around at this panoramic view, and he, he could see the Jordan River, the valleys, the walls of Jericho. There's palm trees over there. And what is he looking around and seeing? He's seeing a place that's an abundant place, a land that's described as flowing with milk and honey, a, a land that's been described to him that he's even seen some fruit from that, that, that's an Edenic place. And God shows it all to him. And then God speaks to him. Verse 4, the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring, and I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. After going up the mountain that God chose for Moses' death, Moses doesn't speak, at least not that it is recorded, but he gets to hear God's voice. The one who created this mountain and all things, the one he knows that before the world was ever created, from everlasting to everlasting, this one is God. That's the voice he gets to hear. He's going up the the mountain that God has chosen for his death. It's as if God has set the scene for Moses' death. And he shows him the promised land. And as he does that, what does he remind him of? Look at this place. This is the place that I promised to Abraham. He's showing him a a view of the land, but he's showing him a view of his faithfulness. I promised this land long ago. Moses is this man who hadn't been totally faithful in his life, and he could have been buried in the wilderness along with that generation that had rebelled against God. God brings him to the mountain that he decided, and he lets him see the promised land, showing him the fulfillment of his promises that he made long ago in spite of his failure. And he sees this promised land, and we're going to read this in verse 7, with eyes that are apparently undimmed, so likely he could see pretty far at this point, like maybe he could see all the way to the sea. His eyes are still undimmed to be able to see this, likely for the same reason that his shoes hadn't worn out during the time in the wilderness, because God had sustained them And in his final breaths, he's seeing God's faithfulness. It's not a bad view when you're returning to the dust. And yet, Moses' sin is part of this scene too. Did you hear those last words of verse 4? You shall not go over there. God holding out on Moses? Is he trying to make him an example to Israel? I'm going to use you, Moses, and here's what I'm going to use you for, an example, so that they would know, don't go this way. Is he shaming him? Hey, remember, you don't get to go over there. Would have been nice. It's pretty good land. Look around. Palm trees, you like those? Is he teasing him with something? Like, hey, this is what you could have had. Is God in this panoramic view that He gives Him of the promised land, is He being cruel? Is God being mean? Is He being hard on His servant? Does God look on Moses' longing that we know so clearly from chapter 3 to go into the promised land? Does He look upon that longing for Moses and say, tough? This is your fault. Is he uncaring towards Moses? I mean, before Moses are shattered hopes, broken dreams. That's what's before him. Is God uncaring towards that, that he shows him this just before he puts him to death? I think the chilling thought to all of these questions is that they hit home. Because if God is that for Moses, is he that for me? Maybe he's holding out on me. Maybe he's mean to me. Maybe he doesn't care much for me. Maybe he's hard on me. Maybe he doesn't care about my good but broken promises or my good but shattered hopes. Even now, some of you might be saying, as you look at God speak to Moses and say, hey, you wish you could go over there. There it is, but you're not going. Some of you are even validating your mind. See, I knew it. This is how God already seemed to me, kind of like he's mean, And here it is. This story just confirms it. But we need to pay attention carefully because I don't think that would be a right reading of this passage or a right and faithful reading of the Scripture all the answers to those questions that maybe could have popped into our heads when we thought about Moses. Is God being too hard on him? Is God uncaring towards him? Is God being mean to him? Is he being cruel to him? Does God not care about his broken dreams and shattered hopes? All the questions are no. And not just no, I want us to hear a resounding no. Because God directed him up this mountain and saying, Moses, I've got something I want to show you. But one day, God directed Moses up another mountain and said, Moses, I've got something I need you to see. In Mark chapter 9, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. He doesn't get to say a word on Mount Nebo that's recorded. Here he is talking with Jesus. Peter says, Rabbi, it's so good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because it's so clearly him. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And Moses, along with these other three guys, gets to hear this same voice come out from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. You see, Moses' last view on Nebo, the panoramic view of the promised land with palm trees and the river and and valleys, that was his last view of the promised land. It wasn't his last view. The the promised land showed forth God's faithfulness, but he got to see the faithfulness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The yes and amen to all of God's promises. And while the promised land view may make it seem like God is holding out on Moses and holding out on his servants, his last view makes it abundantly clear he never held out on it. Yeah, he goes up to Mount Nebo to die, but he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration to see life itself in the face of Jesus. And that startling reality of the view that Moses gets on the Mount of Transfiguration shows all of us who could read Moses and be like, what is God doing? It shows all of us that this is who God is. This is what he's like. This is how God treats his servants. He is unfathomably merciful in His grace to His people. There is none like this God. He may ask us to go up on a mountain and die, but He will always be, for His people, their eternal dwelling place. We might have to return to the dust first, but that won't stop God from showing us His glory. So we may not understand as we look into shattered hopes and broken dreams, all of the disappointments that we have in front of us, but we can know God and we can know his character and we can remember Moses' story and remember its rightful end when we think that God is holding out on us, when we think that maybe he doesn't care about us, that maybe he's being too hard on us, that this is how God must treat his servants. We can remember Moses' story and say, that's what God does, that's who he's like. He doesn't leave his servants on the battlefield. Yeah, because of Moses' sin, he didn't get to enter the promised land. But by God's grace, he got to see the promised one. This is a God you can be all in with. This is a God that you can obey even when you don't understand. Go up on the mountain and die. There's the promised land. Wish you could go over there. That's not how God is saying it. This is a God who is saying, this is the promised land. I've been faithful. I'm going to show you more. Come see this. You see my faithfulness in the face of my son, Jesus? That's the kind of God we serve. So when we don't understand, we can move forward in obedience because that's our God. It's a God you can follow anywhere. It's a God that we can trust to take care of all of his servants in the best possible way. Now, Moses never could have known that he'd go up another mountain. He he never would have known at this time that he was going to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and hear the voice from heaven like, this is my son, listen to him. He never would have known that, but he knew his God. In the plains of Moab, he knew his God, and so when God says, go up on the mountain and die, he goes up on the mountain in obedience to God. He could move in obedience. Mount Nebo is the place that Moses died that's in the land of Moab, but his his burial, we we know some of those specifics, but his burial is a little bit mysterious. Look at verse 5. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Probably a good thing because, you know, the propensity of the Israelites to idolize certain things or places wrongly. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed. His vigor was unabated, so he could see well, and he got up the mountain quickly. And the people of Israel, they wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moab, or for Moses, were ended. Do you see a repeated word there? There's this repeated word, Moab. Not a land flowing of milk and honey, Moab. And it just adds to the sadness. And it, and it kind of casts again, it casts that shadow of Moses' death forward into the promised land. Moab had been the, the plains of Moab, they've been this place for life as a place of decision. This is where you need to decide, life or death in the promised land. Life is before you. He has told them, encouraged them, choose life by, by walking in the fear of the Lord. By keeping all of his commands. This is the place of decision. But at that place of decision, there's this shadow being cast in front of them of Moses' death. He dies in Moab because of his past failures. And it gives weight to the decision that's in front of all the Israelites as they await going into the promised land. And so Moses dies on this mountain. And I think that it seems like the Lord buries him. I think that's the most natural way to say the verse 6, that he buried him. And Moses had actually done, by the guidance of the Lord, a good job of preparing Israel for this very day and time, so that when he dies, they can look around and be like, we, we know what we're doing now, because verse 9, there's Joshua, the son of Nun. He was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had already laid his hands on him, they've already commissioned him, they know that that's the one they're following, and so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now now Joshua is this worthy successor. He's full of wisdom. The people are committed to him and to following him. But there there is still a void void that that Moses leaves behind. Verse 10 10 says that that there has has not arisen arisen a a prophet since in all of Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is the man who, when everyone else was saying, we can't hear from the voice of the Lord anymore or we might die. You need to go talk to him for us. And so Moses is the one who, who went up to the mountain to receive the law, to receive covenant, to speak to the Lord when no one else could go. This is the man who would go into the tabernacle and speak to the Lord and he'd come out and have to put a veil over his face because it was shining and the people were getting frightened and, and thought this was strange that his face was glowing on them. This is the man. He's the one... Who's God's glory passed in front of? He's going to leave a void. It says there's not arisen a prophet since in all Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Verse 11 says, none like him. For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to do in this land, now, who could forget how Moses is used to turn water into blood? To bring about the the plagues of frogs and flies and gnats and the the plague on livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and and the the plague plague of of the the firstborn. firstborn. Like Like, these these are are signs signs and wonders that are unparalleled. unparalleled. Proclaiming Proclaiming that that Moses is serving a different different kind of God. God. And the Lord had extended this privilege to Moses to perform these signs to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to watching Israel. And what's more, verse 12 says, he had all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that he did in the sight of all of Israel. Moses was the the instrument that God used to lead Israel out of Egypt. The, The power that he has in his hand in a sense is that he parts the Red Sea in front of them. They walk through on dry ground. The enemy comes in after them. He lets his hand go. The seas collapse over the top of their enemies. They are wiped out. He is the one who holds up his hand, and Amalek is defeated when they're dropping. He, he, they're not being defeated. and he, They have to have people raise up his hand. This is the kind of power that God Put upon Moses and work through Moses. This is the one who makes water flow from rocks. He pronounces judgment. He's seen fire come out from the Lord and consume people. Like there's earth swallowing people, bronze serpents fire from heaven. All of these are under Moses' lordship. Moses' leadership, not lordship. So he has a unique role. He has had a unique role in all the history of Israel. It puts him in a class of his own. There's none like him, Deuteronomy says. But here at the close, at the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, at the end of Deuteronomy, this book that's the climatic book of the first five books, this unparalleled prophet returns to the dust. And the scene isn't of... Now we're, we've finished your life and ministry, Moses. Now you can ride off heroically into the sunset with dramatic music playing and the end credits rolling. There's, there's mourning as he's buried where nobody even knows. It's a real loss as Moses returns to the dust. And so Deuteronomy ends strikingly clear Moses dying in Moab. Moses falling short of the promised land so clearly because of his sin. And he remains dust in the land of Moab. And yet, there's none like him. He had unmatched privileges. He was used as an instrument by God for unmatched signs and power. And so with both of those things, where does that leave Israel? Moses has already admitted. Chapter 31, verse 27. "I know how rebellious, rebellious and stubborn you guys are. Even at Awa, I'm yet alive, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses, so what do we have to expect? Moses is admitted. You're going to be rebellious. You know who are among the mourners? Achan, his family, they're among the mourners. Some of the folks that were swayed by the spies that had been sent into the land and brought back a a good report of the land and a bad report of whether we should follow the Lord in obedience or not. Some of them have been swayed by that. They're mourning, as are other rebellious people throughout the camp. They're all mourning. And so I think one author says it rightly when he says that Deuteronomy ends on a disquieting and ominous note. The curses, the song, the death of Moses and the words of Yahweh himself have pushed the inevitability of Israel's sin and failure in the land into full view. Not the closing scene that we, like, we would have written up. Moses' death casting a shadow into the promised land hanging over the people as they go in if there's none like him and he knew the Lord face to face and he can't enjoy life in the promised land, if, if he, who has this unparalleled, uh, this unparalleled prophet, if, if he can break faith with the Lord and he was the greatest and meekest of all of Israel, then what hope is there for them? It's an unsettling question. So the end of the, the Pentateuch, the end of the first five books of the Bible, the end of Deuteronomy is disquieting Ominous, unsettling. And I think it's meant to be. One author said that there's this restlessness in the Old Testament that keeps driving the reader forward. Driven forward at the end of Deuteronomy because their only hope for Israel is God's intervention. If Moses can't keep the law, then what hope do they have? If he can't form this people of Israel, people of God, into a people of obedience to the Lord, if there's none like this prophet and he can't lead Israel into the promised land, then something greater is needed. It stirs in us a sense of restlessness. So we come to the end and God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. And he intervenes mightily. And he sins one greater. The one greater that he sends, he's not a prophet like Moses, he's the prophet. Where the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through this one. Indeed, we could say that grace and truth took on flesh and dwelt among us with the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Where Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, this one, the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ himself, was faithful in all of God's house as Son. Faithful to the point of death. You see, the work that God has been carrying on as he buries his workmen, the work that God has always been about is to have a people in his appointed place under his appointed rule. And Jesus, who was this one who was faithful to keep the whole law, living his life fully in obedience to his Father, living the life that every single person born under heaven was required to live but cannot ever live up to. And this faithful one, full of grace and truth, was faithful to sacrificially offer up his own righteous life in death in exchange for sinners. Sinners with scorecards like Israel. Right, do you uphold the Lord as holy? Fail like Israel. you break faith of the Lord? Yes, like Israel. We break faith. We don't keep faith with the Lord. Fail. Do we obey the law? Fail like Israel. We keep the commandments? Fail like Israel. Do we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind? Fail like Israel. But through Jesus' perfect sacrificial death sinners exchange their sinful scorecard for Jesus' scorecard, which is chock full of righteousness. Hold faith. Perfect. Hold the Lord your Father is holy. Perfect. Obey the whole law. Perfect. Love the Lord your whole heart. Perfect. This is why Peter can come along and say that the righteous... Suffered once, once for sins for, for the unrighteous. unrighteous. To do what? What was the aim? What's the work that God is trying to carry on? To bring us to God. And by faith in Jesus' work, God's work of having a people in his place, under his rule, is accomplished and is being accomplished. So that all who are in Jesus will be in God's eternal place under his eternal rule because this is the better prophet who doesn't ever leave any of his behind so that they don't see the promised land. How do we know this? God buries his workmen, but there is one who came out on the other side. And if he has been raised then he also will raise all those who have put all their trust in him to be with him forever. And as we think about the close of Deuteronomy, I hope it gives us a sense of restlessness. I hope that it's rightly unsettling and ominous and disquieting because those things drive us forward. And we can be driven to the place where we can see the greatness of the person and work of Jesus. Then we can be those who, like Moses, can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and know, as he found out on that day, this is the one we've been waiting for. It's in that one that is our only hope. We, too, are like Israel. We, too, do not deserve to move forward with the good life in the promised land better prophet has come. Is that where your hope is? Is that the one you trust? He's the one we can follow even unto death, and he will never fail us. Let's pray together.
2: Let's pray. Father, we are challenged and encouraged this morning. Lord, you are so good to us. Your love is so evident. God, it's so freeing to know that we we will pass on from this world, and your work does not depend on us. It will carry on. And yet, we're challenged, Lord, because you've called us to be a part of that work. You've called us to be on mission. And you've shown us men like Moses in the Bible, who, while while sinful and imperfect, he was a man who lived on mission. And his life counted for something, and you loved him so well. And yet, his sin had consequences. And, Lord, the, the ultimate consequence was Christ on the cross. It's where you dealt with it. It's where you showed us very clearly that the work will go on. It's, it's where you showed us so clearly, Lord, that you love us no matter what, because we're your kids. Help us to think on these things, Lord. Help us to just take in the truth of your great love. And what you've done. And because of that, Lord, what you've called us to be about. Help us to be a people on mission. Help us to look to you always. Even in our failures, God, help us to know that you are faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.